0: of The Winning Agenda. My name's Jesse Marshall and joining me all the way from Tulsa, Oklahoma is the one and only Stephen Woolley. Yeah, Jesse. Hey, thanks for having me. Thanks for being here. Um, It's really exciting to have you on for this show and what we're going to be talking about today is something that we've both been enjoying a lot recently, um, which is Flesh and Blood, um, but also a game that we're also both really, sorry, a game that we are both also really passionate about, which is Android Netrunner, um, that we spent a lot of time playing and that longtime listeners and viewers of The Winning Agenda and Team Covenant would know. Uh, We both probably went through... 99% 99% of the cards that were released for Netrunner uh, between us and um and analyzed them and talked about them and played them. Uh we probably between us went to just about every world championships for Netrunner I'd say. Um Yeah, true. And um yeah, played played plenty of of that game that we loved very much and that for me is probably still my favorite game that I've ever played. I don't know about you Stephen. I I I think that's true. Yeah, I, every time I try to
1: think of something that would displace it, it, it can't. Uh, so, I mean, I we, we streamed this recently. I think Netrunner's right now the greatest game
0: system that exists yeah. to play. Um, but we're here today to talk to all of our um, fellow Netrunner players across the world and, and anyone else who might be interested in Flesh and Blood um, about this relatively new card game um, that is Flesh and Blood and... How it all works, and some of the things that I guess might make Netrunner players interested in it or help them to understand it a little better. Yeah, and Flesh and Blood is one of those games that actually has—it's the
1: one that comes to mind. You know, I—I'm not willing to say, "Oh, it's as good," or like, "I enjoy it as much." I think, I think fundamentally, as a system, it is as good, as tight, as well designed. Mm. Uh, but I just don't have as much experience with it to say, like, "Oh, well, this is my preference over something like Netrunner." So. It's it's in the running, uh, so I think it's an interesting conversation to have, and there's a lot for Netrunner players to enjoy uh, about the system because it is not a play things onto the board and attack your opponent kind of game, which you know is one of the greatest strengths of Netrunner is that it existed in a space where that was the majority of what we were we were able to play. Uh, so yeah, there's a lot of good here in Flesh and Blood, and there's a lot to talk about as it relates to the things that
0: we like about Netrunner. Um, and we thought that uh, those of you who are watching on YouTube, we've got a, a card image up on the screen of Prism, Sculptor of Arclight, which is one of the new heroes in Flesh and Blood that's just been released in the brand new set Monarch. We're recording this in in May 2021 and Monarch's just been released, Stephen. So you've had um, a pretty big week over at Team Covenant the last week or so trying to get all those Monarch cards out to the fans of the game.
1: Yeah, Yeah, we really have. It's been a it's been an incredible journey with this game for us. Um, just being able to get access to it to so many people, uh, and at you know at a good price and at a, re- a really good delivery time frame and all of that, like it's it's pretty cool to be on the ground floor or something mm-hmm. and to watch it take off. While you're, you know, while you're there, yeah, uh, and you know, to have those early conversations with Legend Story and kind of get an mo of what what they're about and trying to figure out what their future is for the game, you know, how they got here, what they what they are are looking to create with this uh, with this game, and to be into that and to support that, and then to see slowly, and then all of a sudden, kind of immediately. Uh, demand and excitement about it just goes stratospheric uh so you know to be to be on the other end of that and and to have the offerings waiting for when and if that moment happens is a really it's a big moment for us as a business it's really nice um you know similar to netrunner or anything else when you're able to start out supporting the game and believing in the game and you see it gain popularity uh that's just a really nice it's a nice moment
0: hmm. oh that's awesome and yeah it really does remind me of when I was first starting out in Netrunner and watching you guys doing your unboxing videos of those first couple of cycles, and yeah, you guys certainly got in on the ground floor of that, and all the content that you put out about that game, you know, the relationships that you had with FFG and the ways that you were able to get involved in commentary at Worlds, promote the game, uh, really get excited about it. Um, I know that that brought a lot of players to the game, both in Australia, which is, you know, the other side of the world from where you guys are, but certainly <laughs> locally around you in the U S as well. So, um, it's great to see you on board with this game and getting so excited about it.
1: Yeah, man. Well, th- thank, I think you for saying that, uh, I think it's got all the goods. I honestly, Netrunner, Android Netrunner, uh, incredible game, incredible design. Um, Particularly up front, whenever Lucas kind of took and retooled the initial system and mm. all the early cycles, I think that was uh, amazing. But you know, we we all know that Fantasy Flight had its reputation and its limits as to how much it could support a game and, and how far it was willing to go yeah. and how much it was investing in Netrunner versus Conquest versus X Wing versus. You know, it was very. There was a lot of things being stretched at FFG, and we we all you know. There, there's the constant jokes about you know, delivery timelines and delays and organized Mm -hmm. play and all of that because they try to do a lot and they they do a lot of things well and there are some things they they do less well. But with Legend's Story, um, they are the most competent and just well-thinking and well-funded publisher that we have ever interacted with. Mm -hmm. And to see their work hit and to see James White, the founder, uh, you know, to see him enjoy the fact that flesh and blood is is really taking root and to know that they have over five years of content already designed and planned before the first set even releases Mm. Uh, you know it's such a nice refreshing thing to see uh when when a publisher comes in and really means it so this is a moment that i've been waiting for for a long time and i'm just glad that the game uh, is tremendous uh, to go along with that you know
0: absolutely and it's it's kind of the mix of all those things that you mentioned before about about netrunner you know we loved ffg for all its flaws um but the organized play it it almost felt like netrunner was too successful and they didn't know what to do with it like it got to this point where they had their cookie cutter model for games about how they did them and how they ran the organized play and all of a sudden they had this smash hit on their hands and they didn't really know how to grow it whereas it's kind of with legend story they wanted that, you know, they, they really wanted the game to be that and to be a smash hit and to grow. And so they had everything just waiting in the wings. They've got, you know, the calling events, which we're really lucky to have one in Melbourne um, next month, which is kind of like a, a magic Grand Prix for, for anyone who's, who's been to one of those. But, you know, it's a large event. There's really good prizes. Um, it's really sort of 200 plus players. Um, and it's just going to be like a big festival of the game. And they're kind of doing that as a touring roadshow. And that's something that Netrunner never really quite got to. Yeah.
1: very. I mean, you're saying that like FFG was surprised by the success and kind of didn't know what to do with it is kind of the, I mean, that's a, that's a clarion call for a lot of their titles. Yeah. Uh, and it is just, like you said, it's very refreshing to see a publisher that didn't say, well, we'll see how it goes. But they said like, we are going to be the next, big trading card game mm. and here's our plan and here's how we're going to do it and now we're going to execute on it and uh that's a very different vibe uh
0: than what we're used to in the lcg space absolutely so what, what we wanted to do today as i mentioned at the start of the show is to give our um listeners whether and, and or viewers whether they're former netrunner players or people who are just interested in in getting into flesh and blood a bit of a primer about the game's core mechanics from a game design and particularly an Android Netrunner game design perspective, drawing some analogies and just talking through how this game handles a lot of the common questions that card games pose. You know, if you're designing a card game, you've got uh, the cards themselves as a resource that the players draw. um, And then you've generally got some kind of like in-game currency and potentially an action economy as well. Um, and this game has all three of those things. It handles them, you know, Netrunner had all of those. It had cards in deck, it had clicks and it had credits um, and it handled them in a particular way. Um, and this game handles that and a whole, of the other, a whole lot of the other things that come with card games uh, a lot in reasonably similar ways to Netrunner. Um, and in other ways it borrows from other different card games or does things completely its own way. Yeah, that's hundred percent right. So the the first thing that we kind of wanted to start off with is the characters um, or the heroes in this game. So much like Android Netrunner where you choose your runner and your corp identity and you bring those to the tournament you choose your hero in Flesh and Blood and um, Prism which we've got up here uh, is one example of one of the new heroes from the new set. We won't go into explaining kind of all the mechanics of it just yet but Down in the bottom left corner of the card, you can see there's a a blue symbol with a number four next to it. That's the hero's intelligence or how many cards they get to draw every turn. Um, Their maximum hand size, if you like. And in the bottom right corner, there's a green symbol with a number next to it and that's their life, their starting life total. Um, And then each hero will have an ability. So Stephen, what are your thoughts on the way that the ways that heroes are designed in flesh and blood and similarities or differences to what you might see on an id in netrunner
1: yeah that, that's a, a great question i i want to start out Jesse, just, just by um you know to netrunner players this this game is different than netrunner for sure and i've seen a lot of uh comparisons from people early on that say hey you know is this like netrunners do you feel the same way And I just want to get it on the table that, like, this is not going to make you feel the same way you feel when you play Netrunner. There are a lot of similarities. There's a lot of good uh, design principles that are shared, which uh, you're wanting to get into. And I think that's the right thing to do. But um, I think if people, you know, are Netrunner players and they're like, all right, this is the next Netrunner, let's go, uh, they're going to be disappointed because Mm. Netrunner is Netrunner, right? It's a very special kind of hide and seek game. Mm. Um, So I like to start off, you know, I've talked to some Netrunner players about flesh and blood and like the first thing I like to say is it's not Netrunner but give it a chance it's a different kind of game and you'll probably like it the same because it has the same critical tension of tempo being on the razor's edge between one player or the other yes and knowing exactly when it's your moment to go and when it's your moment to pull back and defend and build is the central tension of the game and so kind of like netrunner it feels very much like a, a tennis match or something where you're, you've got these exchanges going on and the corp might win an exchange and the runner might win an exchange and over the course of the game whoever wins the most exchanges is generally going to be the winner of mm-hmm. the match so it does play with that like you're not um and i think netrunner at its worst had corp and runner building to board states that became impossible to defeat. Yes. Um, You know, like we saw that where you had these prison decks and stuff. So it's not that kind of a game and it's not like the magic style where you might be losing for 20 turns and all of a sudden you lock your combo in and you win the game, right? Mm -hmm. So it's very much a turn by turn, win or lose the exchange over the course of 10 to 20 turns. And then rise up either victorious or defeated, you know. Yeah. Like so, it it has that beautiful tension to it. A- as to the the actual runners, the IDs in Flesh and Blood, the main thing that's different, I would say, is that their deck building is defined by their faction very specifically. Mm-hmm. Yes. You know, so like when I'm playing Anarch, it's like, yeah, I'm playing Anarch, but I'm gonna bring in the criminal consoles or the criminal breaker suite or the shaper, you know, self-modifying code, whatever it is. So you feel like the runner card pool is kind of all at your disposal. Yes. Uh, What Flesh and Blood does is they very much keep these heroes identified in their individual factions. And so like you see Prism, we introduced in Monarch, the first, uh, what's called Talents, And so there are three layers uh, to deck building. You basically have, what talent are you? And so like Prism is a light hero, it says light illusionist. So that means that Prism can run any cards that are light cards. And they're what's called like light generic cards. So they'll say light action, light instant, et cetera. So any light hero can run that pool of cards. And then you drill down a little further and Prism can also run illusionist cards. Uh, So that's another facet where all illusionists in the game will be able to run illusionist cards. All light heroes in the game can run light cards. And so Prism can run both of those pools of cards. But then you also have a third little facet, which is a light illusionist card. And so this is a card that can only be run by specifically light illusionists, uh, like Prism. And so these are, at least in the early stages of the game, probably for the next three to four years, all light illusionist cards are specifically gonna be run by Prism. And then she can also run light generic cards and illusionist generic cards and universally generic cards. So, you know, when you talk about it, it sounds like, oh, well, it sounds more restrictive than Netrunner, but in a lot of ways, as these card pools flesh out, you have so many different pools of cards to grab from when you're deck building that it does feel pretty wide open while not feeling like you can just run the best stuff from every class yeah. and make kind of like a best of deck
0: so there's no splashing like there is a net runner there's no um borrowing influence from other part uh, from other factions um that's correct and, li- and like you say that does create some more constrained deck building um and perhaps some more um similarities between the 10 different prism decks that you might see at a tournament they might all be more similar than than 10 runner decks that you might have seen in a net runner tournament but The counterbalance to that is the design space um, that that allows the designers to take in this game because it allows them to kind of push each faction a little more in a particular direction without having to worry about balancing it across the entire (laughs) card pool. Um, But it also means that there's a greater diversity of choice. Like I guess one way to think about it might be that rather than having an Anarch deck where noise is your ID, you've got a noise deck. Yeah, that that is entirely
1: right. And the thing that I've really come to appreciate about the game is that well, one thing is that as, you know, more cards release, you really feel your options grow mm. because you have these big categories that you can pull from. But also that deck building in Flesh and Blood is like an ama- like it's a fascinating experience. And I often feel like I'm pretty quickly taking a deck concept and within the constraints of the cards that are available I can put the basic thing together and it functions essentially how I want it to function. But I spend 99% of my time as a deck builder making small tweaks and efficiency changes and little odd swaps, rather than saying like, ah, I guess I'll go a self-modifying code build instead of, uh, you know, an Otman build. Yeah. I Like it's Prism, but the three different cards that I tweak versus the other, prism player is what defines whether I win the tournament or go own five. Uh, and on top of that, your skill with the deck then becomes wildly important. Oh, yeah. Uh, and that's a huge, you know, any any player wants to hear skill matters, skills important. Uh, and you can make the case for many games that that's, that's true. But in Flesh and Blood specifically, you get so many chances to excel or, uh, you know, I won't say make mistakes, but make less favorable trades that over the course of the game losing one or two life you know in those trades
0: is the difference Uh, and we'll come to um a little bit later on the the fundamental nature of the game that's a bit different to android netrunner which is that um rather than playing your corp and your runner games independently so playing one role just as the defender as the corp or as the um aggressor as the runner in, in, in a sense if you obviously that differs from different matchups, but that's kind of a conceptual way that you could think about Netrunner games. In Flesh and Blood, you're taking those roles on alternating turns. So in your turn, you're attacking, and on your opponent's turn, you're defending, and the cards that you have in your deck fulfill both roles. They sort of have two modes. Um, And when you're deciding how how many resources to expend on attacking versus defending, you're constantly thinking about and are caught up in that tempo game uh, and that's because the resources that you have available to you are available over a turn cycle rather than just a turn. So you draw up at the end of your turn which is quite novel for card games you know in most games you either draw during your turn and then have those cards available on your turn or you draw at the beginning of your turn like in Magic but in this game you draw at the end of your turn you then have to choose how many of your cards you want to use to defend on your opponent's turn and therefore how many will be available for you again when your turn comes around again and yeah, that... that's an extremely thoughtful way of putting that oh thank you <laughs> yeah <laughs> but but it's it, it presents as a player i think certainly for your first few games quite a, a jarring experience to perhaps understand and get your head around that tempo but as soon as you do which you know it only takes a couple of games and you just start to grasp it immediately within your first game but you know it takes a while to get used to um once you start to feel that flow it's kind of um it's like learning a language or learning to read music or you know learning to do anything creative all of a sudden your mind adapts and you start to see the the matrix you start to feel the game and it's a pretty cool feeling yeah, it,
1: it, do you do you ever hit that? Like I, I hit this with Netrunner runner often. Usually as the runner, um, that f- it's like that flow state, right? Mm. Where you just feel like you're so locked in to what's happening, and it's just this kind of harmonious decision making that's going on, where you're you're not having to critically think much. You're just moving and acting, and that in any game or any like pursuit, uh, that flow state is really important to me. So. I hit that in flesh and blood after probably you know it took many games of banging my head against the wall and then eventually it did make sense and i was just like oh my gosh this is incredible and i was just like loving the flowing nature of blocking and knowing what i was going to attack with and it was really cool to see that back and forth
0: yeah it's super cool and i think um I, that leads very well into the next card which is harmonized kodachi that i wanted to talk a little bit about which is um, yeah one that exemplifies I think that flow state and, and it's it's quite flavorful because it comes from the ninja faction um, and the ninjas are all about going again and again and again and finding I guess a rhythm and a pattern that is damaging to your opponent uh, without exposing yourself to too much damage and what this very simple card this is the basic ninja weapon from the very first set um, and what it basically allows you to do is get around the game's core restriction which is the one action per turn restriction, so unlike Netrunner where as the runner you have four actions per turn um, so you can make four runs if you you want to, um, or as the corp where you have three actions per turn plus your draw, um, in Flesh and Blood each player has one action point per turn. Um, Now it's a little bit, uh, it's, it's not that clear in terms of the distinction with Netrunner because obviously in Netrunner you use your actions to gain resources, whereas in Flesh and Blood you can pitch cards. Um, so all of the cards you have in, in your hand, which we'll come to, I'll, I'll describe in a bit more detail what pitching involves in a moment, but you can do that without spending an action. So your action points are reserved for your action actions, if you like, the, the yeah, runs, yeah. Um, the it, attacks.
1: It, <laughs> essentially you're getting uh you know you're getting your cards for free and you're getting your resources without spending actions so you know unlike netrunner it is pretty much just what kind of run do you want to make do you want to make a bunch of tiny small runs do you want to make one big run and that's kind of how the action system works in my head is like yeah you can
0: do a bunch of stuff with go again that's less impactful or you can do one big impactful thing exactly and go again is this core mechanic which um harmonize kodachi has on it Um, which basically means take another action. Um, There are some cards that will just say you gain an action point um, for various reasons, but go again is the most common thing that you'll see printed on cards to indicate that you can have another action that turn Yeah. in addition to this one. Yeah. It's it's kind of like
1: a, it's almost like a replenishing effect. When I first was, was learning the game, it was basically you have one action and then if what you did says go again, then you get that action back. But if you do, let's say six things as, at once that I'll say, go again, you only get the one action back, right? So they don't generate actions. Yes. They just replenish
0: your one core action that you can take. And um, the harmonized Kodachi and the ninja playstyle style uh, from the very first set was all about taking, as you described, lots of small actions rather than the one big action per turn in the hope that death by a thousand cuts, eventually you'd get past your opponent's defenses. Um, And another card that I think exemplifies this really well and and ties into what Ninja reminds me of in an Android Netrunner sense, which is criminal, you know, just running everywhere and getting lots of rewards for doing it along the way. Um, The legendary equipment, so legendary is like a rarity in Flesh and Blood, but basically these are supposed to be the cards that uh, exemplify the hero or the faction's mechanic in some way. Um, What this legendary equipment does is it says... uh, when you've basically hit or made three successful runs, if you like, in a turn, you get to draw a card. So it's giving you a, a reward for doing what your faction wants you to do in the same way as a desperado or something else does. And it just gives you this really clear signpost to say, if you're making successful attacks or you know, to use the Netrunner analogy, successful runs over and over again in your turn, then you're actually getting some resources back for doing that. And I think that for me exemplifies something that's really clean design really clear to the player and gives you that feedback of that achieving that flow state.
1: <laughs> yes, absolutely. And, and you imagine you're, you're the blocker, you know, I'm sure you've run into this where, you know, Ninja, it's gotta be the third attack, but you know, if you get a Kodachi, which is the smallest attack in the game it's one damage. And it's like, well, I'm not going to block one damage. Cause I've got four cards and I want to waste one of my cards that I could use on offense for one damage. So you take the one, and the second attack is the second Kodachi. And it's like, well, you take one again. And then now it's like they play an attack action card. It's the third uh, third attack that they've done. And it's like, well, now if this hits, they get a card and a card on offense like this is just crazy. You start with four, yeah. you probably pitch one for resources. It's like 25% of your entire turn they could gain with that card. And you're like, ah, now I've got to block this, but then they have ways that, you know, so it's it's this kind of, it's like a Netrunner when you, you know that they've got their remote and they've got R&D, and probably both of them are fairly vulnerable, and they can't protect both. So like you run the remote, force them to res the ice, and then you drop the medium and go over to R&D. Like those kinds of plays are what Ninja uh, does a lot of as well, where like you, you feel like you can't quite block everything, so you have to decide where is the most threatening lane for
0: them to attack. And um, one thing that I also want to note about these particular cards that we've been showcasing here, the Harmonized Kodachi, the Mask of Momentum, and the next one that I'm going to show, which is Findal Spring Tunic, which is kind of a totemic card in the first year or 18 months of, of Flesh and Blood. Um, they begin the game in play. So this is, I guess, another feature of Flesh and Blood that distinguishes a little bit from Netrunner, but also it, it is kind of similar in some ways. Like it, it kind of advances you forward in your game state a little bit because you begin not only with your id or your hero card in play but also with your weapon uh, which is the harmonized kodachi um, if you're a ninja uh, and you and you choose that one Uh, your equipment such as your mask of momentum so you've got a head slot a chest slot gloves and boots And you begin with these cards in play, which means that you've got some consistency to the way your games play out. You've got a bit of control. Um, It takes some of the randomness out of the game, Uh, but it also means that you've got a bit of a board at the beginning of the game, if you like. Um, But I guess what's different to Netrunner is rather than building it up over the game in general, some factions do build up and add more to the board, but most factions, you tend to lose your pieces on the board until eventually you're left with less, which kind of creates a bit of a different dynamic. It's a, yeah, it's a very different dynamic. And you nailed it, like you start at your most
1: powerful Mm -hmm. and you have to sacrifice your capability over time to defend effectively, right? So like most of this equipment is gonna have armor on it. So it's a moment where you can use something on the board to block instead of wasting a card from your hand, which can give you a big turn or it can save you from a big turn your opponent has. Mm. But also now that might leave the board and now that ability that you brought is no longer there. So you're weaker over time, but you trade that for a big moment now. And that central tension is really important to the game. It's kind of like, um, it's like if you started Netrunner, if you started as runner, you chose your ID and then you brought your console and your breaker suite and put them on the table. Yeah, Like that's how every game started but then those, as they get used, would kind of leave play over time. So you you have this really powerful moment up front, and then you kind of wear each other down. And at it's the end of the like we like what's to... um Is it
0: Geist's console that you trash to, to that's do right. something? That's right. <laughs> yeah. Um, that's It certainly fits the idea. Yeah. Uh, I So
1: one thing that really has me excited about this is like, there's no... Um, so much of the equipment is just generic and not faction locked. Yeah. So if you think about, you know, the difference between pl- playing your anarch deck with Desperado or you know mm. Spinal Modem, forgive me for being an old Netrunner player. Um, <laughs> the, there's such a difference in the way that your entire deck plays just based on that change. Yeah. yeah. So over the course of the next three to four years, taking like a hero that I love to play right now. And knowing that there's going to be a ton of equipment that might open up new lanes of play for them and new opportunities for them to do their thing differently is extremely exciting for me. And being able to just put that down, it's like I played some World of Warcraft and you know, just equipping your character with armor and weapons so that you find cool and exciting and fun is really important and it brings a lot of joy. So it that does. you have that
0: mechanic in the game is really nice. And there's something really cool about the fact that you can choose your equipment once you see your opponent's hero card as well so you can bring a range of equipment to your tournament Um, and then based on the different mechanic the the different mechanics that different heroes are likely to lean more heavily on you can gain some information uh, from your uh, opponent's hero card and once they show you the hero card you're allowed to kind of adapt your equipment to suit the battle Um, and that's i think a really cool mechanic not only for making different heroes that attack you on different axes more balanced and and fairer because you can bring different equipment that will help you to deal with what they're trying to do. Um, Some examples will come to later with, you know, wizards dealing arcane damage. You can have equipment that protects you from arcane damage and you don't have to choose to run it against everyone just in case there's a wizard out there. You can just wear it when you're playing against the wizard. Um, And that's a really cool mechanic, I think.
1: Yeah, it would be like if your opponent flipped Wayland, and then you could sub in Plast Creek characters. Yes. Yeah. Uh, rather than you know you go to the tournament, and in ninety percent of the matchups it's a dead card. Uh, it would be nice if you could just be like, oh, it's I'm gonna go infiltrate Wayland. I should
0: probably worry about me damage here. And for long-term listeners of the Winning Agenda, you'd be very familiar that with the fact that I was so passionate about sideboards in Netrunner because. Silver bullets to me were such a problem with the game design and where it kind of got the game got itself in all these sorts of knots where you were constrained in terms of allowing players to attack on different axes, whether it's something like Potential Unleashed, the Jinteki ID or other things that um, come at runners from a different angle or, or come at Corps from a different angle for that matter, that you needed to have things like Film Critic on the runner side and, and a whole range of other silver bullets. And then the silver bullets, in order to make them more playable against a range of different things, needed to start being like Swiss Army Knives themselves that did like a whole lot of different things on the one card. Um, and I understood that the designers didn't want to, you know, hose Wayland out of the, the metagame completely by saying everyone can just sideboard into their Greek carapaces and then you won't have a chance of winning. But what how Flesh and Blood's got around that is by saying from the very beginning we're designing with this in mind, with the fact that you can sideboard. So we've balanced Wizard, we've balanced arcane damage, we've balanced all the different factions and all the equipment around the fact that you have this adaptability.
1: Yeah, if you're you being a fan of sideboarding and advocating for a netrunner, have got to be very over the moon with Flesh and Blood. I think the sideboard is amazing. I mean, Absolutely. You, you basically sub in equipment and then, you know, probably 12 to 15 sideboard cards that Mm. you can sub in and it can do everything from change your resource curve to give you new lanes of attack, to giving you a higher defense, uh, you know, over time. It's just a lot of play with a sideboard and it's an incredibly deep part of the
0: game. Yeah. Um, so I'm super happy about that. And the other um, uh, next thing I want to talk about, I guess, with Find or Spring Tunic, the, the equipment card that I mentioned earlier was around resources. Um, and resources are the equivalent of Netrunner credits, if you like. Um, and they, uh, as you mentioned there, Stephen, with adapting your pitch value or your curve, uh, resources are generally gained from pitching cards in your hand. Um, so each card in your deck will have... Uh, a blue stripe at the top, a yellow stripe at the top, or a red stripe at the top and that will be its pitch value. Um, so blue cards pitch for three, red cards, p- uh, yellow cards pitch for two and red cards pitch for one. So each card will either provide you three, two or one resources. Generally common and rare cards will have all three variants and the blue variant that pitches for three will be the weakest. The yellow one will be slightly uh, stronger and the red one will be the strongest in terms of the effect of the card Um, but obviously the blue one gives you more resources so you've got this constant trade off which you mentioned earlier when you're deck building about does my strategy and does my hero and does my card pool and the cost of my cards to play require me to play more blues so i can actually afford to do the things i want to do so i can trade you know pitch one card and play my cards rather than needing to pitch three cards just to play one which is a terrible situation to ever end up yeah. in um <laughs> or can i get away with playing pretty much all reds because most of my things cost zero or one um and that's a really core part of a flesh and blood deck building and find or spring tunic is a really key card in flesh and blood because It gives you passive access to resources which is something that doesn't come up a lot in the game so there's no there are no pad campaigns and adonis campaigns and kind of sure gambles going around Um, it really is just pitching your cards for three two or one generally but then this is one of a a very small number of cards that you know once every three turns you get a free resource and i think the fact that this is so good um, this is like the go-to Chest piece for pretty much every hero, uh, with a few exceptions, shows you how finely tuned and balanced this game is. That one resource every three turns is the tipping point. (laughs) Yeah, is a huge advantage,
1: right? Yeah, you're you're completely right about that, and it's it's cool to see them explore the different slots of gear too, because like all of pretty much all of the chest slots are manipulating resources in some kind of way. Mm. Um, and find alls happens to be just the most generically great and helpful at mm-hmm. doing that. You know, there are some that you destroy and all your attacks are free. Yeah. You know, it's like, oh, well, that's a big moment of a turn that I get to do for free, but I then lose the piece of equipment. Uh, so I think the tunic sees a lot of play because it's just consistently giving you that incremental advantage, like you were saying. And that is rare in the game. All the decision-making is super tight and you have to be attached to, or really not attached to the cards in your hand because they have to do everything for you. They've got to defend, they've got to make your money. They've got to actually do the business of damaging your opponent. Uh, so it's a it's a beautiful tension and, and Find All's definitely helps to kind of smooth that out and give you that one resource when you just really need it.
0: So the I guess the, the next concepts to, to get people's heads around is that there are kind of three main categories of cards that you'll put in your deck. Um, there are actions, reactions, and then instance. Um, yeah. There are also some items, but they are kind of a subtype of actions, if you like. Um, so the main actions are kind of the, the main cards because they're the cards that you'll use your one action point for the turn playing and doing something with. And they're generally broken down into actions like Dauntless, which I've got up on the screen here, which is a non-attack action um, they're referred to. And then you've got attack actions um, such as pedal to the metal, which I've got up on the screen here as an example of that. Um, So attack actions basically are like runs in Netrunner. So it's like playing a legwork or playing a maker's eye. You play the card and wrapped up in paying the cost of the card is the cost of making your run and threatening to do damage to your opponent. And then after you play that card, you play it onto the board and then they have an opportunity to respond by blocking with their cards. Um, I very much enjoy this feeling, and, and it does actually feel so much to me like running a Netrunner, where you pay your cost, you play your ac- your attack action. And then you're kind of like, OK, what have you got? It, it yeah. really does feel like a ice? run. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's
1: true. And the, the attacks can be very, um, essentially, cinematic. You, you have to imagine, right? Like when you're calculating, sometimes you're attacking because you don't have a great opportunity, but you know that they need to block that attack so that their offense next turn will be less impactful. Mm-hmm. So like you're putting pressure on it. It's very similar in Netrunner where like every run is not to get an agenda. Like yeah. you're you're making a run to poke here and see if the res ice and then that'll slow them down. And then, you know, you get some information and then you make a run over here and you're kind of trying to always keep your opponent on their toes where they never can get kind of settled. And it feels like that constantly on both sides of the board. Um, so like you're saying, whenever you're deciding you're making that run, you're, you're launching that attack. Your opponent can say, ah, I won't defend with anything. I'll just take three or four damage and keep my full hand. And then you're like, ah, I really kind of wanted them to block that because I didn't want them to have a full hand going yes. into my defense. Uh, so, you know, that balance is, uh, I, you really noted that well, that I hadn't thought of it like
0: making a run, but it really is that almost exactly. And you really want to, like you're saying, Stephen, you, you want to present such a credible threat that your opponent is going to commit resources to preventing it. And that, yeah. to me, feels very much like when you're the runner, you want to be attacking the place the corp doesn't want you to attack so that they have to spend their money raising the ice. Because
1: yeah. if
0: they get to just sit there saying, sure, make your run, you know, then they're probably going to win the game because they're not having to commit any resources to stopping you. That's right. And then they come in with their four card hand
1: and it's like, here's 13 damage. And you're like, ah, yeah. And they put you on the back foot. So that's
0: very, very nicely noted. And very much a part of um, making your uh, attack actions credible or your attacks, you can attack either with weapons or with attack actions, but um, attack action cards are certainly very common across, across most factions. Um, a, A part of making either your weapons or your card attacks credible is playing things that either give them go again or give them additional strength. Um, so that the little yellow spear symbol is the strength symbol, um, and that you'll see that across all sorts of cards. And it'll generally be, or always be used to refer to an attack strength um, or a card's attack strength. Um, and things like Dauntless, which I've got up on the screen here, is just kind of a very vanilla basic example of an action card that has go again, um, that says your next weapon attack this turn gets an additional strength uh, and any defense reaction cards that the other hero plays cost them more resources to play. So you're making it more expensive for them to defend and you're making your attack stronger. Um, and like a lot of these action cards that are not attacks, it has go again, basically so that it doesn't exhaust your one action for the turn. Yeah. You're kind of charging up with it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and yes, yeah, Steel Blade Supremacy is, is another really commonly played and, and powerful example of that. It makes your weapon stronger for the whole turn. It says, if you let me hit you with my weapon, I get to draw a card. So awesome. Um, and it, it basically is saying this threat is a really credible threat. And it rem- this reminds me very much of that kind of Maker's Eye legwork style card where it's you're supercharging your next run and saying, you better defend this one or else. <laughs> it's going to get bad. It's yeah. going to snowball. Um, so the other, the other card type, which I, I mentioned a little earlier, and the other kind of access that they've introduced to the game is, is non-combat damage. So a lot of the, the first set and certainly the first 18 months of the game has revolved around this give and take of attack, defend, attack, defend. It, try and exhaust your opponent's resources with your attacks and uh, force them to defend with their cards very quickly in the in the second set they introduced this whole different axis on which players could attack each other which was arcane damage um so zap is a a basic wizard action it's just zero cost deal three arcane damage to a hero and this is basically something that it's like a jinteki dealing unit damage you know it, it happens on a completely different axis to to the normal attack and defend
1: yeah it's it's very similar and it's it's really cool to see how they're playing with the different pressure points of uh how somebody can be essentially attacked because you know a melee attack or a physical attack with that the spear that you're referencing that is generally just blocked by taking a card from your hand or two cards from your hand putting them on the table and then you know adding up their block value and then discarding them into your graveyard Whereas what arcane damage is doing is it's taxing your resources. So rather than actually blocking with cards, you're generating money with cards to then pay off the arcane block. And so you do have two things. So like, if you're running a deck that doesn't do very well at generating resources, Mm. a a wizard can come in and be like, all right, here's five arcane damage. And you're like, even with my whole hand of red cards, I can only generate four resources. So if I pitch my entire hand, I still take one. Whereas usually if you have a four card hand, you can block 12, about three per card. So it's taxing a different axis in a very interesting way. But then also the way you defend arcane damage is non-permanent in terms of your deck going away. Mm-hmm. So as you talked about, you know, when you pitch cards to generate resources, those cards at the end of your turn go down and back into your deck at the bottom. Yes, so it's a constant cycle. It's like the Star Wars CCG. It's a constant cycle of you. You generate money with a card, and then you put it on the bottom of your deck, and then eventually you're going to draw back into that card, and maybe you use it, or you generate money with it again, or whatever. So you can block. Whereas infinite...
0: when you when you attack or defend with a card normally in combat, it goes in the graveyard.
1: Goes in the graveyard and doesn't get so shuffled back in. Yeah. And eventually, those card, if you block enough over the course, of the the, the game will inevitably end because mm. somebody will inevitably run out of cards because they have to keep blocking. But against wizard against arcane damage if you have the resources you can technically pitch block that arcane damage and not lose any cards in that exchange so over time the wizard player and the arcane player is going to be losing cards because they're playing them to attack and they're going to the graveyard but if you have enough you know mystical uh resources as it were you can just keep defending so it's by both pitching. harder yeah yeah by pitching so it's both mm-hmm. harder and easier, depending on the way that your deck is built. So I think it's a really healthy metagame balance of like, you can't really come into a tournament with no resource generating capability. uh, But you also uh, can't, as a wizard player, just assume that doing two to three arcane damage every turn would ever win you the game, because it's not going to run them out of cards. Uh, So it's a really cool cool. uh, mechanic. I like it.
0: And and the other um, kind of aspect to that, which I really loved, I just played my first game tonight actually against a Mechanologist deck. Um, My friends put together a a Mechanologist deck and I loved it because not only are they, um, I've got locked and loaded up on the screen here because every time I look at that, I just, the art of it, I just think of Android Netrunner. I'm like, yeah, this totally belongs in Netrunner. But um, the Mechanologist as a faction, you know, they're putting... permanence onto the board which is something that most other factions don't do you know they've got these little um items that they that they can play that all get steam counters because it's all very steampunk themed um and those items basically give them more efficient turns it's kind of a shaper vibe you know you're putting together all these different items on the board and eventually you can do things more efficiently than your opponent and kind of start to grind them down with this efficient machine that you've built Um, But the downside, uh, they've also got this mechanic called boost, which is really powerful. And it's basically most or all of their attack actions, if they um, banish a card, just like exiling a card or removing it from the game, from the top of their deck uh, while they're playing that attack. And if it's a mechanologist card that they exile or banish, then it gets go again. So all their attacks, as long as they've got enough money, they can just keep going again and again and again and again. But the downside is that they're banishing cards from the top of their deck and eventually... They're going to run out of cards. And uh, that, uh, I think just like with the wizard where, you know, you mentioned that because your opponent, if you're a wizard, is pitching and therefore their cards are going back into their deck rather than normal defense where it goes into the graveyard. Um, mechanologists are going through their cards in a completely different way in order to get this benefit of, of having go again. And, and that creates a risk reward structure that's slightly different. And I love how they've kind of played with that.
1: Yeah, we, we, Talk about it in terms of running out of steam a lot mm-hmm. with Mechanologist, <laughs> where like, they will just keep boosting. And then if you can just defend long enough, they will yeah. literally run out of steam. And it's yeah. a, kind of a cool little mechanic
0: there. Yeah. yeah. Um, so uh, another couple of um, little things I wanted to go over quickly. One, I guess, was the, the more defensive side of the game. So we've kind of gone over the attacking mode and the instance and the ways that you can try and kind of force your opponent to, to commit their resources. Um, to defending you but what actually are those resources so you know you can see on this card pedal to the metal as steven mentioned most ordinary attack actions or attacks uh, or actions rather will defend for two or three Um, most faction cards tend to defend for three and that's in the bottom right hand corner the little number next to the silver shield so that's the amount of damage that they can block as opposed to as you'll see most attack actions Will have a number, I mean this one happens to be three on both sides, but most attack actions will actually have a higher number on, on the attack side. Um, so you'll generally have to either commit multiple cards to defend one attack action, um, or you'll have to commit some of your armor as well. And, and Part of the reason for that is that you don't have to pay the cost when you're defending with a card, so you don't have to pitch anything when you're going to defend with a card, whereas when you're playing an attack action, you have to pay the, the cost, which is in the top right-hand corner. So for Pedal to the Metal, it would cost the the Mechanologist player two to attack with it. But if you were to block, uh, if the opponent was also playing Mechanologist and they were to block with a Pedal to the Metal, they wouldn't have to pay any resources to, to block. Um, so yeah. it kind of balances out the the attacking and defending that way.
1: Yeah, it's true. The, uh, the defending in the game is like the lair, of this game that is where the magic happens as a player. You know, it's similar to to sometimes the runner's making a run on HQ and it's like, I got one agenda and I got five cards in hand, like I'm not gonna waste time resin that ice. Uh, But then sometimes they're coming in with like a maker's eye, you know, R and D interface craziness. And you're like, I've got to pitch my whole hand to block this, like I've got to defend everything or this effect is too devastating. So you'll see that in this game too. Like you're you're saying, like sometimes it's just two or three damage, and you're like, eh, you know, not a big deal. And then sometimes it's a bunch of damage or a big hit effect, and you start to look at your hand and say, man, I, I think I've got a I've got to defend with three or four cards here, and that gives your opponent an entirely new turn. Uh, so you know, the defending and making sure you have a deck that has defense values that are good uh, across the cards. is another thing you balance as a deck builder. You can have really strong and powerful effects that have no defense stat. And so you might be sitting on a hand of no defense, knowing (laughs) that whatever your opponent does, you cannot block and you try to bluff out of that and just say, yeah, you know, it's not a big deal. You know, I won't defend, I won't drop any cards.
0: Or you might be sitting on, you know, like to go back to what we're discussing earlier, like um, Steel Blade Supremacy, you know, a really powerful, aggressive card that you're like, this is my my hero's kind of uh, trump card. Um, But I don't want to defend with that. You know, the turn I draw it, I I kind of, not only do I want to protect my life total, but I want to protect these powerful cards in my deck as well by not having to defend with them. So sometimes you'll do things like... Um, on a turn you've drawn something like Steel Blade Supremacy, if your opponent does try and do a powerful attack that demands a response from you, perhaps rather than defending with it, you might actually draw on your equipment that turn. So, I mean, you won't be playing these two cards in the same deck, but Carrion Husk is at the moment the the highest defense value on on an equipment. Mm -hmm. It defends for six. So if you're playing a deck that has Carrion Husk um, and you've got that on the board and your opponent comes in with this really big turn and you've got kind of the perfect hand and you just you're like if i can just make it through to my next turn safely i'm pretty sure i can put so much pressure on them that they'll never recover that might be the turn where you slam your carrion husk down as a defender and just say yep i'm resing this big piece of ice <laughs> yep absolutely you're not getting great it great analogy yeah beautiful cards yeah yeah really really cool card so that's um that's kind of a bit about the attack and defense. I just wanted to kind of quickly mention defense reactions because I think they're kind of a little unique part of the game as well. It's kind of like uh, after you've raised your ice you've got like a an instant you know an asset that you res and then activate at instant speed or an upgrade or something in, in your server. Um, defense reactions are like your last little line of defense and they happen in a slightly different window to defending with your cards and um, Yeah, a lot of them will have higher defense values, like um, Steelblade Shunt, which I've got up on the screen here, is uh, the blue one defense for four, uh, the red one defense for six. You you generally won't find those kind of stats on cards that you just play to defend, like attacks or or actions. Um, But when you play a defense reaction, you actually have to pay for it. That's the difference. That's it. And the only thing that it can do is defend. And Mm -hmm. so...
1: You know this is the most efficient way to defend attacks but as always in flesh and blood there's always a trade-off so you might draw into a hand where you have four defense reactions and you know that you're not going to be able to attack next turn Mm. (laughs) you know so if you build a deck that can really like i had a ranger deck that had like 15 to 16 defense reactions out of 60 cards and there were times when i would have hands that i literally just could not attack with uh so you, you have to ask, like, is it worth a more efficient defense across the, the scope of the game to also have turns where maybe I don't attack at all? Mm-hmm. And you get, and if you don't, it's like giving a corp a turn where you don't run, right? It's like, well, yeah. now they can really easily advance out their agenda because you didn't put any pressure on. Um, so it can be efficient, but then if you have too many, it can actually lead to them, your opponent having so much offense that you can't efficiently defend your way out of it. So it's a good it's a good little balance and a lot of them have little kind of sub effects like you were talking about that give you a slight benefit as well. So finding the balance between attacks in your deck and Defense reactions and equipment that i'm going to run and normal actions that are going to pump attacks. And cards that have three Defense values, rather than two Defense values um, is all just this beautiful dance that you do in deck building.
0: Um, And that I think brings us very nicely to the last topic that i wanted to to chat about which is getting around the key restriction in the game of the the one action per per turn Um, you are a netrunner player (laughs) and and i guess the ways that different factions do it because you know we all remember particularly for corpse it was obviously a key part of the game for netrunner was getting around that restriction whether it was fast advancing agendas with sansan city grids or or, uh, biotic labors or whether it was trying to um, compress the runner's clicks by denying them clicks or forcing them to uh, clear tags or whatever else, so that you basically got six actions in a row um, and you could advance your agendas. In Flesh and Blood, so much of the game is about expanding the size of your turn and the number of things you do on your turn and compressing the size of what your opponent's able to do and what they're able to achieve, and therefore the amount of pressure they're able to put back on you. Um and I guess to, to start with you've got this card in Welcome to Wraith Time Snap Potion which basically says if you invest one action now you can get that action back on a later turn and that for me as a starting out in the game was just this really simple perfect expression of how the game offers you that opportunity um, it's generic, it's available to everyone and it says to every faction, if you can find the right time in a turn that you can invest an action point, you can come back on a later turn and do something really huge. So that's kind of the starting point in my brain when I'm when I'm analyzing every different faction and the way it does stuff, I'm like, okay, Uh, would this benefit from a time snap potion or are they just doing things better? And if they're doing it better than what I could gain from this, then I'm like, yeah, I'm keen here. (laughs) I'm excited about this. Yeah,
1: yeah, that makes sense. And this is one of those cards that has no defense value, right? So, you know, if you run a bunch of potions in your deck and you draw a hand of four potions, you're looking at, I can't defend and I can only play one of these cards next turn uh, yeah. because it does consume the action point, it is an action. So it's it's Flesh and Blood always has such a tight trade-off between the things you want to do and the things you have to sacrifice to do it. So the, the combo play and, and stringing like elaborate things together, it doesn't feel cheap. It feels like you had to earn it the entire game by sacrificing tempo, sacrificing tempo you know, not attacking, playing potions. And then all of a sudden it can happen on one big turn. Um, So it all is just very tight. It doesn't feel cheap to like
0: easily toss out extra actions and extra cards. No. And I think what I often find part of this is a product of the four card hands is that you feel like your cards are really powerful and like they're setting you up for until end of turn, you get this benefit. And then you're like, oh wait, but I had to spend two to three cards to get that until end of turn benefit and now I've run out of yep. gas. And that just, it happens all the time. And it's, it's so hard to actually set things up where you're like, yeah, I'm really going off here. I'm, I'm chaining it all together. And that is a somewhat unintentional pun that leads me into chain, <laughs> which is, I think, <laughs> the it's it's from the new set in Monarch. And I think it's possibly the most powerful example of uh, a mechanic in the game that allows you to take some disadvantage uh, to gain a consistent ability to get around that core restriction of one action per turn. It's basically saying to you, you can have two actions per turn if you're playing chain, but eventually you're going to eat up your whole deck <laughs> by yep, doing and it.
1: And that's, ex- that's exactly how it goes, right? So as you're, as you're saying, you create that soul shackle you get that extra turn, but then maybe next turn you do the same thing, and then now you're you're losing two cards off of your deck every turn. And then you do it again, and now you're losing three every turn, four every turn. And the thing that I love about this mechanic, aside from just the, you know, the actual mechanical reality of that push pull and push your luck kind of thing, is that it's so thematic in that it's tied to this shadow rune blade idea where you're you're diving into the well of that kind of shadow magic and it's very powerful. And like you can make it amazing by, you know, cultivating that. But there's always a downside to that shadow magic. We know it. And so over time, it corrupts you and runs you out of cards. Uh, So not only is it mechanically interesting,
0: but it actually ties into the theme exceedingly well. Yeah. And, um, Aside from the very blunt instrument of chain, another one, which I think is, and this will be the last one we touch on before I wrap up, I think your favorite faction from the new set is Illusionist. Is that right? Yeah, it, it's just some of the best art. And it just Illusions
1: in general is like, it's where I live. I always played Illusionist in like D&D growing up and stuff. So
0: I mean, I'm, I'm really into it. Yeah. And and one of the things that I really like about the Illusionist mechanic, I've got Phantasmal Footsteps up on the screen. And it, it basically says... The way that they get around this once per turn restriction is they say if I don't get to do what I want to do. So if my attack doesn't hit and doesn't go off, and you basically destroy it, which I'll explain in a moment, then I get another action. Um, I can yeah. I can pay one resource and have and have another action, which is a very cheap rate of return. You know, when you've seen time snap potion that requires you to commit a whole action, like pretty much a whole turn, in order to get that same one back later this card pretty much says all you need to do is pay one resource to get another action point if you fulfill the condition, which is really powerful and so thematic and works really well with the, the main mechanic for Illusionists, which I've got Enigma Chimera up on the screen now, which is you know a two resource cost for an eight strength attack, which is like way above curve, like hugely above curve. But it's got this ability where if they defend your Enigma Chimera with a, an attack action card with six or more strength, Um, then it basically disappears in a puff of dust and it just fizzles. Um, And so, you know, you've got this really powerful, interesting mechanic that, you know, creates all these metagame questions. You know, everyone who's building decks now is thinking, have I got enough six or more power attacks to to deal with illusionist decks? You've got um, this incredible kind of risk reward decision that you're making as a player and as a deck builder and then you've got this really cool piece of equipment that you get to start the game with because you can because you can, Phantasmal Footsteps is a, an equipment that you can start with in pl- within play. And it basically says, in re- in return for taking this risk and playing these Phantasm cards, we're going to give you a little bit of a buffer, <laughs> a little bit of a chance yeah. to have a second go on those yeah, teams. And that's awesome.
1: And so much of the Illusionist card pool is, is pretty expensive. Like you generally are, are paying a lot for the cards that you're playing. So having to spend another resource and then to get go again with the phantasmal footsteps and then spend more resources to play your cards that you now have with go again it's like it's very taxing for illusionists to Mm. to pull that off um so you have to build your deck around that you have to build a certain way you have to have the right hands uh so it's it's again everything you know how sometimes in in netrunner it felt like The genie kind of got out of the bottle with certain cards, and it was like, whatever the math on this card is, makes no sense. It's like so good. Yeah. How did this ever get printed? Um, So far, the flesh and blood design is always so conservative. Yeah. It's like it's it's conditions, or it's you can only do it in this specific instance, or you know the math is literally on like a spreadsheet of like you get one extra attack if you play this card. But you lose one defense, and it's like, ah, oh, that's a cool trade for me to understand. So, in all of these interactions, and even the new mechanics of Monarch, uh, you see that like this is all so tightly wound together
0: that nothing feels like it like got out of the barn. You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah, yeah, I completely agree. And you know, I've I must confess, you know, I've only been playing Flesh and Blood for a little while now, but I, I've fallen absolutely in love with it, and pretty much every deck that I've tried to build and put together as a, as a like, completely novice player has felt like it's worked. It's felt like it's been powerful, interesting, but not over the top. And that's, that's pretty phenomenal for a game to, to give that to a new player, like that feeling.
1: Yeah. I mean, honestly, because the cards can all do all the basic mechanics of the game, like a card yeah. can always generate resources or it can always be played or it can always block. Um, even the limited environments feel this way where like your cards always feel very relevant and valuable so maybe i intended i put this in my deck because i was intending to play it for this specific effect but right now it just needs to make two resources so i can do this other thing instead Mm. so you you have so much adaptability based on your cards that even if you're designed to to do a certain thing with this deck those cards can always do other things and so as the game goes on, your ability to adapt and play cards in different ways than the way you were expecting allows you to defeat and overcome situations that maybe you didn't plan for. Uh, so I love that about the game that you always feel like you do have outs. Yeah, um, Your cards aren't doing
0: one thing only. So you can really play with the math on how your turn going to work out. And, and for me, that really draws on a lot of what was amazing about Netrunner in that regard, that you had these actions that were um, fungible, you know, you could turn them into credits, you could turn them into cards, you could turn them into pressure and tempo. Um, and you had so many choices on every turn and that and that made it feel like such a game of skill. Um, and it made it feel like you could really uh, make your own fate through your decisions. And that was why so many players loved cards like Jackson Howard that removed some of the variants from the game and said, yeah, you can reset you know certain parts of it, and, and I think Flesh and Blood, just through the the actual game design and through the way that it, it's structured, gives you that because your cards do so many things. You know, you're never saddled with just a whole lot of lands in hand or just too many economy cards and not enough of your kind of action cards early on, because your action cards are also economy cards. And hundred uh, percent, that's yeah, pretty cool. <laughs> the dance goes on. Yeah. Well, thank you so much, Stephen, for taking the time. And I hope for our um, former Netrunner players or current Netrunner players listening, um, those of you who are still loving the amazing stuff that Nisei is putting out. I know both Stephen at Team Covenant, you guys, and at the Winning Agenda, we recently did a, a card spotlight on a few of the spoilers from the new um, Nisei set. Uh, it's been extremely impressive to watch what they've been able to do with continuing the game. And I think, in many ways, the kind of the Nisei system gateway and system update. Uh, like the core set 2.0 that we should have had <laughs> and like really putting the game in in, in a brilliant place. So I think is in a great place, but yeah, I hope that you, current, former, whatever, or never Netrunner players, if you've listened all this way through, uh, hope you've enjoyed mm-hmm. our chat today and I um, hope you dip your toes in and enjoy some flesh and blood. Yeah, thank you so much for
1: having me, Jesse. And I, I, I do agree that Nisei is, has been crushing it. We played System Gateway and it was as good or better than uh the Netrunner that I've been playing from the start. Yeah. So I I hats off and uh flesh and blood another, like you said, phenomenal game. And if you got room for two, it's
0: worth checking out. Cheers. Thanks Steven and thanks everyone for listening. We'll see you next time.